0: All right folks, good afternoon. We are not here. We are Whoops. Here. All right. So this is page 125. Yep. I did. Yes, I started the recording. All right. So last class we were looking at different ways to measure outcome and production. We finished production. And now we're looking at measuring outcome. And we did one piece of this already. We talked about response magnitude. So if you go back two or three slides, you'll see methods of measuring, uh, assessing outcome, response magnitude. The other way to do it is by measuring accuracy or error. There's a second way of measuring outcome. And what that's talking about is your performance with respect to a certain criteria or goal? So here are some examples. When I shoot a basketball, trying to put it in a hoop, what I'm dealing with is spatial accuracy. The hoop is stuck on the wall at a certain spot, ten feet off the ground. The diameter of the hoop is about twice the regular size of a ba- or size of a regular basketball. So. It's a very simple measure. Is the ball in the hoop or not? Very simple. But it's considered a fairly crude method or a not accurate, no precision involved. Because it's either in or it's not in. You can actually miss the center of the hoop by quite a bit and it'll still go in. Okay. Another way would be to measure the distance that your dart is from the bullseye. This is a more precise measurement, because we can measure in centimeters or millimeters. We get a very precise numeric value, as opposed to, ball was in the hoop, ball was not in the hoop. Another possibility is if you play a video game, and the video game has objects, call them space aliens, that move across the screen, and your job is to press a key To make a bullet go flying out to knock down the space aliens. What's required there is uh, temporal timing accuracy, because you don't have to move anywhere on the screen. It's just there and it's moving across the screen. You just have to decide when do I press the key. In many, many things that we do, we require both spatial and temporal accuracy. So being at the right spot at the right time matters. So let's take playing baseball. I have a bat. The ball is coming. If I don't swing at the right spot and at the right time, I will not make contact. So if I swing at the right time but in the wrong spot, I miss the ball. If I swing at the right spot, But the wrong time, I also missed the ball. I need both, the right spot, the right time to make contact. When you're landing an aircraft, you need space and spatial and temporal accuracy. Nice landing, 50 feet in front of the runway, you've crashed, right? Got the right timing, oh, just at the wrong spot, okay? So space and timing. Imagine leaving the lecture hall at the end of lecture every day and you don't put your hand up at the right time. What happens? Smash your face against the glass, right? So spatial and temporal accuracy matter in lots of different activities that we do. And we can measure those sorts of things in terms of measuring uh, outcome. Now what we're doing, we've already covered these slides last lecture. So we're jumping ahead to page 130, right, page 130 in your notes, and we are here at information processing. So we're going to be talking about parts of the information processing model. This is a study guide for you, here are the things that we will be discussing. And we're going to look at driving as one of the primary examples of uh, applying selective attention in the information processing model to uh, skilled performance. So this is us. We get input from our environment. It might be my voice at the moment, it might be the slide on the screen, it might be the smell of the person's lunch beside you, whatever it is. You're getting information. You process that information, and you decide to do an action. Maybe it's write a note. Maybe it's close your eyes and go to sleep because it's a boring lecture. Whatever, right? You make a decision. And this is how we function. Now, there are three stages in our information processing model. We've talked about them already. There's the perceptual stage. So let's take driving the car, you're driving along, and then brake lights go on ahead of you. You need to perceive that those lights have turned red, they're on. Then you need to make a decision. Hmm, the car ahead of me is stopping, what should I do? If you're close to the car ahead of you, you're going to put the brakes on. If the car ahead of you is a long ways away, you may just take your foot off the gas and coast. Whatever, you need to make a decision. And then, part of your brain has to say, okay, I'm going to execute an action. You've got to send a signal from your brain, down the spinal cord, down the leg, to your foot, and it's going to let off the gas pedal, or step on the brake, whatever, All right? So those are the stages. And here's what our model looks like. Same one we saw at the very beginning of the course, It's got three stages to it, it has feedback loops, the loops are labeled there 1 and 2, and we're going to start talking about selective attention. But first of all, how do you read this model? Well, those arrows aren't there just to be pretty. Those arrows actually represent something. They represent information and the flow of information. So what is information? Stimuli in the environment is one type of information. So when I'm talking, you hear my voice, that's a stimulus in the environment. It also represents coding in the nervous system. Remember how Professor Sergio talked about when you touch something with your fingertips, it presses in, there's a transducer, signal gets sent by action potential up to your brain, it's processed, and then action occurs. Well, the same thing. Those arrows represent the coding that goes on. It has to be changed from pressure to electrical, gets sent up into the brain, gets manipulated, chemicals, all that sort of stuff that goes on. So the arrows represent the coding that goes on in your nervous system. The boxes represent stages in the model. And at each stage, The information gets uh, processed and then recoded. So if the information comes into one part of the brain, it then gets passed on to another part, passed on to another part, each time it's recoded, sent on to the next uh, stage. And then we have those loops called feedback loops, which were on the right-hand side at the bottom of the model. They give us information about error. Now you've been brainwashed for 15, 18 years of school that errors are bad, right? They're wrong. Errors are simply information that tells you the difference between what you wanted to happen and what actually happened. Error is not good, it's not bad, it's just the difference. It's like a stick. Is this stick a good stick or a bad stick? Well, if I hit you with it, you're gonna say it's a bad stick. But if there's a, a, a wild animal coming in and I use the stick to protect you, now you're gonna say it's a good stick? No, it's just a stick. It's the same thing. Error is not good, it's not bad, it's just information in the motor learning context, okay? And we've already talked about this. The processing capacity is limited. We've had numerous demonstrations of that. We will talk more about that as we go along. So here's our model, and we're going to talk about before the stages start, and that is selective attention. So the red box on the slide is where we're starting, and then we're going to go through each one of the stages. Not in this lecture, we'll barely finish the red box in this lecture. So here's a map, here's what we're going to be talking about. You can use this as you're studying. Say, okay, what is it, why is it important, etc. Now you know this one already. The processing capacity is limited. We have to use selective attention. You know that you cannot pay attention in lecture if a person is whispering in your ear telling you things. You know you can't pay attention to what the lecturer is saying, if you are texting. You can't do it. You pretend you can, but it actually doesn't work. I demonstrated that in one of the first lectures. So the only way we can do it, because the world around us is like a massive pipe, and your brain is like a little garden hose, you have so much stuff, you can only plug the garden hose into one little part of this pipeline. Right now you're ignoring your butt on the chair. Because if they focused on your butt on a chair and the smells in the room, you wouldn't have enough processing capacity to understand lecture. So, the only way we understand what skilled performers do is if we monitor what they actually pay attention to. So, we use selective attention to cope with the environment. There is so much out there, we can't possibly cope unless we attend to just a small portion of it. The most important type, most important sense for the vast majority of us is vision. We are visual creatures. It's estimated that we get between 80 and 90% of our information in the environment visually. Which is why I have overhead slides, right? You hear my voice, but you're kind of ignoring that. You're looking at the slide, you're paying attention to that, right? because we're visual creatures i use slides you kind of look at it you hear my voice and you read it okay all goes together kinesthetic senses and hearing audition is hearing they're secondary they're useful but nowhere near as important and how we control our attention is different for each one of our senses or modalities it's a different process so let's look at vision The way we know what you are paying attention to is by measuring what your eyes do. Your eye movements are actually unconscious most of the time. You don't think about it, it just happens. When somebody walks in the lecture hall at the bottom here, I can tell without looking at them because I see like a hundred pairs of eyes. You don't mean to look over there, it's just an evolutionary thing. When our ancestors used to walk through the forest, the jungle, the plains, and there was movement over there, was it important that we look? Yeah, because it might be an animal that's going to attack us. It might be another tribe. It might be whatever. So when there is motion, your eyes go to it. Even though in this lecture, if I were to offer you 100 bucks, okay, if you can keep your eyes on me and somebody walks in here, most of you cannot do it. It just happens. Your just, eyes just automatic. There's motion. Your eyes move to it. Even though you say, no, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to look. Oh, I looked. Now, Professor Sergio has mentioned this. I will mention it again. You can actually only see things clearly in a very narrow range, two to five degrees, where it's actually focused on the fovea of your eye. Right? So I can see... This water bottle, it's kind of a cool-looking bluish-grayish water bottle. I don't know what color it is, but I can see it clearly. I have no idea what's written on this cup that's right in front of it, right? If I want to see what's on the cup, I have to move my eyes a little bit. Oh, I see, okay, right? So if I want to read, if I want to see something clearly, I have to look at it. Which means, if you want to see stuff, and get information in, you have to move your eyes constantly to get information into your brain for processing. Now, here's a little something. Two terms. The first one is fixation. Tonight, I want you all to go home and look in the mirror. I want you to watch your eyes move. So in other words, look at the mirror and then move your eyes across the mirror and back. I'm going to tell you what's going to happen. You will never, ever, ever, ever see your eyes move. When you look in the mirror and your eyes move, you can't see it. No information is input when your eyes are in motion. The only time information is input is when they're fixated, Stop. So I can see this jug in front of me because my eyes are stopped on it. As my eyes move over to your cell phone, I didn't see anything. I have no idea what was in between here. Only, the only way you can see your eyes move in the mirror is if you keep your eyes stationary and move your head. Then you will see your eyes moving in the mirror. They'll change in relationship to the eye socket. But if you try and move your eyes and keep your head stationary, you won't see your eyes move. Try it when you go home. Fixation is the only time information goes in, when your eyes are stationary. Now, those movements that happen very, very rapidly are called saccades or saccades. No information goes in while your eyes is in motion. Alright? So, We have fixations, and we have saccades. So how do we look at something? Well, you say, well, you just look at it. (laughs) You'd be surprised. When you look at an object, your eyes are actually moving all around that object. You don't realize it because the movements are unconscious. So here is a perfect example. We're measuring what the person's eyes do. And what we've asked them to do is look at this image here. Right. Now, the first uh, bunch of squiggles, where did my mouse go? Here. The first bunch of squiggles, here, number one, we said, just look at the picture. And what you can see is the eyes moving all around that picture, all over the picture. But if we say, I want you to tell me The ages of the people that are in the picture. Notice how the pattern here has changed dramatically. You look at the face of the man walking in, you look at the face of this woman at the doorway, you look at this person, you look at the person in the background, you look at the child over here. Totally different pattern. Each one of these patterns you're looking at, you're being asked a different question and your eyes move somehow to solve that pattern, or to solve that question, answer the question. This is how they do the movement, or the recording rather, eye movement recording. You have a pair of glasses or goggles on, with a small camera that's mounted on the rim of them, that measures where your eye is actually looking. Right? So it's checking out center of your eye, pupil, to find out what it's staring at. Now most of the early research up until recently, these kinds of goggles required cables. So much of the research we're going to talk about right now involves relatively stationary performers. But now with wireless, you can transmit this signal all over the place. You can do it on people walking around in crowds or being out on a f- sports field, etc. So, let me ask you to stare at this photo. It's a photograph of a very famous statue, Egyptian, what do you call a female pharaoh? Pharaohette doesn't sound right. I I don't know what it is, a queen, I don't know. Anyway, so stare at this. And I say, what did you look at? You would say, well, I looked at the statue. Actually, this is what your eye movements would look like. A great deal of time would be spent on that statue looking at the eyes, nose, and mouth, chin region here. Your eyes would involuntarily move over to the ears, and they'd move around at other different parts. It's amazing, even though you think you're looking at one thing, your eyes are actually moving all over the place. And it creates a pattern. There you see the pattern of what's going on. How could we use this to teach people to become more skilled? Well, here's one way. This is in the educational environment. We have two children. Child on the left is six years, five months old. The child on the right is three years, 11 months. We show them identical pictures, two houses side by side. And we simply ask the question, are these the same pictures? Look what the child on the left does. They look at each window, make comparisons back and forth, and then they answer they are the same. What does the child on the right do? The child on the right looks at a couple things and says, eh, they're different. There's no way the child on the right could get the right answer because they haven't input the right information or enough information. Right? So, there's one example. Let me give you another. You folks... Most of you know how to read. Let me change that. You all know how to read. You're in university. You are considered outstanding readers. In fact, most of you are actually very brutal at reading. Because no one has ever taught you how to read. If we measure your eye movements, we ask you to read a paragraph, right, which is made up of a whole bunch of lines of text. This is what we would see you doing. You fixate on the first word, maybe two words, and your eyes move to the next word. You fixate again, move, fixate, move, fixate, move, fixate, move, fixate, move, fixate. You get to the end of the line, your eyes zip back to the beginning of the next line, and you repeat this process. End of the line, zip back, and then maybe... You get distracted, oop, gotta go back and read that word again, and then you go, oop, forgot that word. Hmm. And then we end up with a pattern like this. Now, that's the way we read. You and I. I'm no better. Right? Because no one ever taught us the skill of reading. We learn how to form words and we learn what the words mean. But how to read. Has anybody taken a speed reading course? You know those dudes that get a book and they go, next page, next page. How do they read? Not like this. Because if you read like this, it's going to take you forever to read all the words on the page. A more skilled reader would read like this. Fixation, new line. Fixation, new line. Fixation, new line. Like that. Maybe they'd have two fixations per line. Why? Because they've learned to look at four or five words, take in that little piece, four or five more words, and then on to the next line. It's a skill you learned. We learned how to read, right, in grade one, kindergarten. One word at a time. If we were skilled, we would have been taught, look at five or six words at once. What did they say? Oh, got it. All right, look at the next five or six words, right? Entirely different movement pattern. We don't know this unless you measure it. You watch someone read. You see their eyes moving. Whatever. Now, another type of movement called pursuit eye movements. Pursuit eye movements are as follows. There's a definition there, but look here. See this remote? Watch the remote. Keep watching the remote. You guys all just did a pursuit eye movement. Your eye speed matched the eye speed of this object. So effectively your eyes were fixated on this object. Even though they were moving, they were moving at the same speed as this object. So information can go in. So I said information doesn't go in when your eyes are moving. It can go in if it's moving at the same speed as the object that you're fixated on, all right? Now, when do we see this? Well, well, catching a baseball, catching a basketball, hockey puck, those sorts of things involve pursuit eye movements. You track the object. Driving a car on a highway, and there's an on-ramp, merging traffic. I'm driving the car, and I look. At the car merging. I watch the car merging. I am in a pursuit eye movement. Watching the car, watching the car crash. Right? Where do accidents happen on the highways? At the on and off ramps. Why? Because people are spending way too much time on a pursuit eye movement. The novice driver has to focus on the merging vehicle, merging vehicle, merging vehicle, and then bang, they collide. What they should be doing, I see a car merging, and instantly judge, is that car going faster than me or slower than me? If they're going faster than me, they're going to merge ahead of me. If they're going slower than me, they're going to merge behind me. And then pay attention out here. So pursuit eye movements can be very useful. If you want to watch me during lecture, you need a pursuit eye movement, right? Because I'm constantly walking around here. But, if you're driving on a highway, pursuit eye movements aren't always a good thing, and long pursuit eye movements are the cause of many, many accidents. Now, you've all heard of peripheral vision. Peripheral vision is quite useful because it helps us determine if something is out there, off to the side. So in early evolutionary times, right? Did it matter if there was something over here? Yeah, because it might be trying to eat me or attack me. So I needed to know if something was over there. But if I was going to throw a spear at it right away, I might be making a mistake. If I want to know who it is, maybe it's one of my fellow tribe members. I don't want to send a spear in their direction. I would need to look at it. So if you only need to know, is it there, peripheral vision's great. But if you need to know who or what it is, you have to look at it. Now, team sports as an example. As long as the person is wearing the same colored uniform, I can pass them the ball, the puck, whatever it is, we're all good. If it's a different color uniform, I probably want to make sure I get out of the way because they're going to try and take the ball away from me, whatever. Now, just to show you that skilled performers can get sucked in with peripheral vision, our Toronto basketball team, the Raptors, had a situation where the players on the bench were wearing sweatsuits that were the same color as the players playing the game. So, in their mind, you see a jersey over here that's the same color, and you throw them the ball, except they're sitting on the bench. And I'll show you this actually in real world situation. So, we got light and dark colors, red and white. The player sees an object that is dark and throws the coach the ball. Watch. That's peripheral vision. If they'd looked, clearly they would have seen, well, that's not a player, that's the coach. Right? Let's take some examples of measuring eye movements. As I mentioned previously, many of these are done on relatively stationary people because of the technology has only recently come available that allows wireless. So the first one is goaltenders in hockey. Right? The goaltender's job is to stop the puck. person is coming at them and takes a shot. What do you think you should watch if you want to stop the puck? Clearly, you want to watch the puck, right? Because that's what you have to stop. Except you'd be wrong. So they looked at novices and experts. So novices are beginners. Experts are very experienced. Now both of them looked at the puck and the stick. But far more fixations on the puck for the novices. Now here's what's wrong about that. The puck doesn't tell you anything. It's not gonna change shape, it's gonna stay black, it's gonna be three inches in diameter. It gives you no clues about where it's going. If you want to know where the puck is going, look at the stick of the person shooting the puck. Because the stick, the angle that the stick is held at, will tell you or give you some cues as to where the puck is gonna go. So the experienced goaltenders spend time looking At the stick. They spend more time looking at the stick than they do at the puck, because they have learned that the puck doesn't tell you anything. Now, how did they figure this out? They figured it out by probably the most useful method, useless method in the world. It's called trial and error. Imagine if I gave you exams and you got the, you know, some questions right, some questions wrong, but I didn't tell you what the answers were. I said, well, try again. And so you guess again. Oh, nope, you got some wrong again. And you had to keep guessing. That's what trial and error is all about. So the good goaltenders have figured out. No one taught them this. They didn't take a motor learning course. They figured it out by practicing and trial and error and they eventually get it right. The good goaltenders figure it out and they move on. The bad goaltenders keep watching the puck and they never get selected. Trial and error is a terrible way to teach skills. Now, let's talk about driving. None of you are going to be in the NHL as hockey players, so let's say driving. The notion of driving is really a scary concept. The way we teach driving, basically around the world, is quite bizarre. We give you the keys to something that's worth twenty to $50,000. It's very large, it can kill people easily. And we say, go ahead, start driving. Mind-boggling. Well, what do I look at when I'm driving? Ah, you'll figure it out, just drive. What we should be doing, if you wanted to teach driving effectively, is using simulators like this. In a simulator, we can measure what you're looking at. We can tell you where you should be looking. We can create all kinds of dangerous scenarios. Nobody gets hurt. And when you become parents in 20, 30 years, and you're teaching your children to drive, nothing is more harrowing than taking one of your children out on a driving lesson. It's probably one of the reasons I don't have a whole lot of hair left. Scary proposition. Now, what can we measure? Here is what we can measure. So we have two people. The green dots, the circles, are the experienced driver. The red triangles are novices. What do you notice when you look at those? The red triangles, the, the beginners, are focused primarily in the middle. Like almost all of the dots for the red beginner are right in this range. The experienced driver has got vision all over the place, looking at a much wider scan, much wider space. Now what we can do with simulated driving is you can introduce hazards. So you could have a little dog run across the road. You could have a person jump out in front. You could make cars put on their brakes. All those sorts of things. And we learn. What are we supposed to be paying attention to? Here's what some studies on novices have shown us. Novices, smaller range of horizontal scanning. That's just what I showed you. The green things are much wider. Red, all in the middle. They look closer in front of the vehicle. If you remember when you first started to learn to drive, your concern was don't hit the car in front. That's all you worried about. Well. Actually, the second thing was, don't drive off the road. And that's exactly what your vision is about. You look closer to the front of the vehicle. You don't care what's down the road. You're just right in front, and you don't want to drive off the road. Novices seldom look in the rearview mirror. Who cares what's behind me? Eh, who cares? Except it matters. It might be an emergency vehicle like an ambulance or a fire truck. It might be a reckless driver swerving in and out. You need to know what's behind you. And look at this, pursuit eye movements all the time. Those are dangerous, right? Because you're not paying attention to what's important up ahead. Make very short ones. Lots of examples of what happens when you are on the cell phone. Don't be on the cell phone when you're driving. So first thing. Basically, people don't look at the sides very much when you're on the cell phone. Remember, you have a limited capacity. Some of it is used up with the conversation, and some more of it is used in a narrow range straight ahead. So they don't look to the periphery. The second study is similar. What it's showing is that there's an increase in eye fixations directly ahead. So studies one and two basically showing the same sort of thing. Study number three, less memory for objects that they've looked at. What does this mean? I don't know if you've ever driven to school and then you get here and you kind of go, Geez, I don't remember anything about that trip. I, I'm here, but I don't remember. Why? Because you were focused on other things. So if you're paying attention to the cell phone conversation, you miss out on the conversation, or not on the conversation, on the objects that you've seen as you've been driving. And here is the really scary one. If you glance inside the vehicle for more than two seconds, which is not very long. 1001, 1002, which is just about as much time as you need, right, to type one word or two words on your cell phone. If you do that in the five seconds prior to some dangerous situation, so in the simulator they've introduced danger, your chances of an accident are 200 to 300 percent higher two to three times higher, which is 200 to 300 percent. So if you are distracted while you're driving your car, for simply two seconds prior to a dangerous event happening, chances of having an accident skyrocket. So you're driving your car and someone in the back seat says, are we there yet? Like you used to do when you were a little kid. And you turn around and say, no, we're not there yet. That was long enough that your chance of accident goes way through the roof. Or you glance down at your cell phone to text that friend that can't wait five minutes until you reply. Now, what happens to visual attention? Well, simply listening to verbal material, so if you're listening on the radio or to an audio book when you're driving, it doesn't cause dual task interference. Dual task would mean driving and then remembering something you saw on the road. There there would be two tasks, dual tasks. So if you're listening to the radio, it doesn't really affect. However, if you're having a cell phone conversation, your reaction time becomes slower. Does that make any sense? Why would your reaction time get slower when you're talking on the phone? Well, it happens... And you will find that what people do is they leave a bigger gap in the, lane, in the traffic. If you're driving on a busy highway and you see a big gap, chances are the car that's causing the big gap, the driver's on the cell phone talking. And if you change lanes and pull up beside them, you'll probably see them chatting away on the cell phone. Hands-free, but still chatting. These effects get increased As the traffic increases. And what happens, your attention, instead of focusing on the driving, focuses to what's important in the conversation. And that creates problems. Why doesn't this happen when there's a person in the car? Because the person in the car with you knows when to shut up. They look ahead and they see danger. They're quiet for a few seconds while you make your adjustments. So, what do we know about Selective attention, visual selective attention. The patterns of skilled and unskilled performers are different. Skilled performers have figured out how to do the task. They know where to look. They know what's important. And we could teach skills much better, much faster, if we measured what skilled people do. We try and learn by trial and error, not good skilled performers are more efficient and they know what clues to look for in the environment what matters when you approach an intersection and you have a green light do you look at the uh, walk signal to see if it's white or has it turned to red do you look to see the numbers counting down or are you just staring at the green light what do you pay attention to what do skilled drivers do and you can't trust the driving instructors They might be right, then again, they might not be. Until we do the research, we won't know. The only way to know what skilled people look at is through eye movements. We have to measure. You've got to check out, what do these skilled people actually do? Now, the second type of sensation that we have to um, use selective attention with, and that is hearing. So vision is way up number one, by miles. But hearing does matter. It helps us perform. Now our capacity to process auditory is also limited. We can't process two things at once. And we'll talk about this with what's called the dichotic listening paradigm. And it's manifested or illustrated with what we call the cocktail problem. Let's pretend that two of us are having a conversation. So I'm talking to this person, we're having a conversation, and then all of a sudden, those two people over there, they say your name. So we're talking, you're asking me what's on quiz two, and I'm giving you the answers to all the questions on the test, and then you hear your name over there. What's going to happen here? You hear your name, you don't want to look at them, because that would be rude. but you shift your attention, right? They said my name. I'm gonna li- what are they saying about me? Meanwhile, I'm giving you all the answers to quiz two, but you don't hear what I'm saying because you heard them say your name. Now, why is this a problem? Well, because there's two sources that you wanna get information from. You want the answers to quiz two, but you also wanna know what they're saying about you. So you have a problem. How can you solve it? You have a couple choices. Number one is you forget about this and you just listen there. So you are selectively deciding to attend to that conversation. That's one way. The other way is to divide your attention. You hear two words from me, four words from them. Two words from me, four words from them. You're switching back and forth between it. You won't get all my information. You won't get all of their information. Okay? So that's two ways we can you can switch the attention between the ears, or you can pay attention to one and not the other. And here's how we do it in the lab to show that it actually occurs. We put stereo headphones on you, right? and in the left ear we give you the digit 1, and at exactly the same time you get the digit 3. So one and three are presented simultaneously, one in each year. Then the next two digits, four and eight. Then the next two digits, six and five, et cetera. Once all eight digits have been presented, we give you a piece of paper and say, write down the digits in the order that they appeared, or that you heard them. What do you think your score will be on this test? 50%. You can listen to one ear, or the other ear, or you can switch back and forth. You get the first digit from left ear, the second digit from the right ear, the third digit left ear, fourth digit right ear, any combination. You'll get half of them. You will not get them all. It's not possible because of limited capacity to process information. Two sources coming in at the same time, you cannot possibly process both of them. So you have a decision to make, am I going to use, pay attention to one ear exclusively or switch back and forth between them? All right? Now, suppose we're driving on the, our cars on the freeway, highway, and we get a little too close to the car in front of us. Do we have technology we can put on the front of the car to signal the driver? that you're getting too close and you should slow down or stop. Sure, we have that technology. Very easy. It's like radar. What is the best way to signal the driver that they're getting into danger? Is it with touch? Is it with sound? Or is it with light? Should light start flashing in your car? Should your steering wheel vibrate? Should there be a squealing sound that comes out of your steering wheel or out of your radio? Which of those senses would be the best sense to say, wait a minute, you've got a problem? All right? And we'll answer that question next class. All right? So, we'll stop there. We will carry on next lecture on Wednesday.